It was just this screaming for her children, screaming for her people, see me, see us, see us. The whole room just exploded in grief. I mean, people were howling. And everyone hugging each other, the Jews, the Palestinians, in each other's arms, sobbing. Because in that moment, that woman's hatred went through her heart and came out as fierce love. Fierce love. In that place, suddenly, everyone was a mother. Everyone had children. There was no sides. There was no good, bad, right, wrong. There was a unified place that said, we're in this together and we have to do better. Is there someone in your life who you hold in such high regard that the term mentor or guru might apply? Someone who you think is so gifted, so brilliant that you feel blessed just to know them? I do. And in a moment of spontaneous courage, I asked this person if she might be willing to be interviewed for my podcast. And when she said yes, I thought I might throw up. My imposter syndrome coming out in full force. You see, I believe Anne Bradney is a gift to all those who have had the good fortune of working with her. I met Anne 10 years ago in San Francisco when I attended a two-day workshop she was leading. This was my first experience ever exploring any type of therapy or work that was focused on self-growth or self-understanding. Those two days inspired a decade-long journey of annual workshops that both my husband and I returned to every year. This work, therapy, somatic integration, I honestly struggle to describe it, has transformed how I relate to myself and the relationships I have in my life. So who is Anne Bradney? Anne studied core energetics in New York before serving on their faculty for a number of years. She then left in 2002 to form her own school in Los Angeles called Radical Aliveness. She's continued the work of Radical Aliveness both in Canada and the U.S., but also leading RA workshops in Nairobi, Kenya with local tribes, and most notably in the last 10 years with Jews and Palestinians in Israel. In fact, Anne was in Israel doing this work on October 7th, 2023. And a lot of our conversation today revolves around how we're socialized and the work that Anne does to bring people from radically different perspectives into connection. I couldn't be more excited to share this conversation. It's a long one, but I encourage you to listen to it fully and stay curious around any judgments that come up as you listen. You're listening to Everyone Has a Story with Erica Senor. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for joining me, Anne. Oh, I'm excited. I do a pretty poor job of explaining this work to my friends and colleagues. So I wanted to start by asking you if you wouldn't mind in the simplest of terms, explaining what these workshops are and the work that you do. Yeah. So first I would say that I don't call them workshops. I call them laboratories. And for me, that really gives you the idea of what we're doing, which is we are in a space where people are coming together and have the opportunity to really experiment about how to be with themselves and each other. 
So this work is very much about really making a space for people to feel everything that they might need to feel that they haven't had an opportunity to feel and to understand and to learn about in themselves and others. It's also about understanding that we've all been taught how to view the world in very specific ways. And that changes wherever you are. I mean, it changes from the United States to Canada. It changes from Israel to Palestine. It changes from Jews to Christians. So we're, we're holding a space where all of this can be present, the ways we've been socialized, cultural issues, systemic issues, as well as our deep interpersonal and family of origin issues and the ways all of these come together. In these rooms, we have an opportunity to explore that. So I'm really interested in How are we helping people have more awareness, more clarity in their feelings so that they can navigate the world in ways that are constructive, that bring a different kind of understanding and empathy and caring to every place we go and everyone we meet? And curiosity. I always found this work to be very curiosity-focused. Absolutely. Curiosity is so important. And in our world, which is so polarized, we often just go into our camps and we read what we read and we double down on what we're thinking and feeling. And in these laboratories were saying, open your eyes, get curious. We're all human beings with multiple perspectives. And it's scary to be with people who think or feel differently from us. And in my opinion, it's the way forward. And learning how to get curious and beyond those simplistic categories is part of my mission in helping people be in the world in a different way. Do you think that it's part of human nature to almost be tribalistic in the sense that we like to stick with what we know, be with people like us? And so you're right, it is scary to be in a room with someone who's so different, who believes in the polar opposite of what you believe in. And I personally find it very difficult to stay curious in those moments. How how do you foster curiosity with two people that are so polarized? Well, when you say, is this how human beings are? Absolutely, right? I mean, this is part of how we evolved, how we survived was to be with our tribe and to learn how to categorize. That's That's baked into us. It made a very complex world more simple so that people could make decisions quickly. There's a stranger, danger, all all that. And it feels so exciting to me that at this point, 
in the world. Because we are coming into contact with so many differences, from my perspective, we have this opportunity to actually do something different with differences. And one of the ways to create or foster curiosity is to give people certain skills and also certain agreements that allow us to work with the conflicts that come up around differences in ways that lead us someplace beyond these simplistic walls that we've put up. And, and I've explained the work in certain ways that allows us to stay in very difficult moments when people are having strong feelings that help us go beyond a place where we might separate and move apart and, and help us come closer. Yeah, and that leads me to setting up that room, that laboratory where agreements do get made. So I wondered if you could outline the five main principles of RA. And I'm also curious if you have any reasons or examples of how each of those principles came to be. Yeah. Well, we'll start with, uh, for me, this one has become so important. Knowing I don't know. We see the world in very narrow ways based on our socialization, based on what we've learned. There's so much we don't know. And for me, I was very interested in how do you train leaders to be in a room with this attitude so that all the wisdom that's present in the room that I can't possibly know about because the world is way too complex has an opportunity to come forth to be seen, heard, and validated. Even back when when I first was working in Israel with Palestinians and Jews, I remember that we were in a group and I encouraged one of the Palestinian women to really get angry <laughs> at another woman who was her elder. And she wanted to get angry. She wanted to. But it was coming from my filter. My filter is it's fine to get angry and it's great to get angry and it, it's going to be positive. The moment it happened, the whole group turned to me and said, this is not how we treat our elders. And I could see that the woman that had been gotten mad at was so crushed. And I could feel in the room that I had made a mistake. But I didn't know that culturally that was not something that you do. And so it caused harm. You know, it caused damage that I had to then say, I'm so sorry. I don't know this. Tell me more. And then they could tell me about, you know, in that society, in a collectivist society, how elders are treated and what you can do and what you can't do. I'm coming in with my American blow up the room kind of attitude. 
And it's really not going to be helpful if I'm viewing things through my lens and doing things that are really culturally taboo. Or later, I was in a room with Palestinians and Jews in Israel, and I remember that there was a man who was looking down. He was a Bedouin man. And one of the women in the room said, look at me, look at me. And I said, wait, just a second, wait. And I asked him, in your culture, what is it to look in the eyes of a woman? No, that's culturally not appropriate. So that's that's an example of knowing I don't know. And what it takes to be both a leader and a leader participant to really embody this principle so that when new information is coming towards you, you have the ability to take it in rather than push back or feel threatened because you're being met with something that you didn't know before. And so that's the first one principle. Should I tell you another one? Yeah, there's five. Yeah. Honoring multiple perspectives. So, for instance, I was in Canada, and maybe I was in a room with people who had very different perspectives about the war in Israel. I mean, this is a non-negotiable in my rooms. We honor multiple perspectives because there is not one right answer in the world. And we have to make space for the different perspectives because it's only by being able to be with different perspectives and truly listen to each other and find out what goes on around people's beliefs and feelings around world issues that we can come to a deeper understanding with each other. And, and this happens around everything, children, religion, education, right? Everything. I mean, I find honoring different perspectives to be challenging, but also when I have the opportunity to get that perspective, it completely flips my opinion. I, I remember talking to a mom outside of my daughter's school about sleepovers. And she said, oh, we have a rule. We don't do sleepovers. And I immediately went to judgment. I immediately went to, you're a helicopter parent. You're crazy. And what actually came out was that she had been sexually assaulted at a sleepover. Oh, exactly, Erica. That is it. And this is what happens in the rooms all the time. When we make space for these multiple perspectives, you will often get to much deeper information that's informing why people are thinking the way they're thinking. And it's often very deep and very touching so that we can open up and be changed by our encounters, which is another 
principle, being willing to be changed by our encounters. So the curiosity, the not knowing, the holding multiple perspectives, when we can open up to a perspective that is not ours or that we've had strong opinions about, and we are able to stay in a conversation and drop beyond our really shallow sometimes categories, we'll find a human being on the other side. And it does something, right? When you just told that story, it touched my heart. Yeah. And now I'm able to, when I have a judgment on someone, I'm able to try to say, what do I not know? What am I missing? They may not always share it. In these laboratories, they do share it, which is wonderful. But sometimes and when I'm walking in the world and I catch myself judging, which we all do, this work has taught me to try to stay curious and try to ask myself, maybe there's something I don't know here. And I, I think that leads me to the fourth tenant or principle, which is do no harm. So do no harm was added later. Do no harm is connected to the story I told you about encouraging the, the Palestinian woman to get angry at her elder. We are going to do harm. So for me, the do no harm principle is about when someone tells me I've done harm, then I stay and I listen to my impact, and I'm willing to the best of my ability be with you and find out more about what just happened. So that's do no harm. We have saying yes to everything, which is a very kind of controversial statement, say yes to everything. People always wonder about it. And for me, what that means is, I'm encouraging people to say yes to everything inside of them, including judgments, including difficult feelings, including taboo thoughts. Yes to everything. Because in these laboratories, we have an opportunity for all the things that happen in the world to happen in these rooms in ways that give us an opportunity to bring them to consciousness to find out more? Yeah, I think to say yes to everything, what happens for me in that is because you're welcoming people's judgments or people's statements of impact on this is how you've impacted me. We're all walking in the world, but in these laboratories, I get so much feedback that I never get in the world about my impact on people because they're being told to say yes and look at me and say, I'm judging you, Erica, because I think you are blah, blah, blah. And there, no one would ever say that to my face in the real world. But in the laboratory, it gets said. And so suddenly I get this window, this glimpse of, oh, this is the impact you're having, Erica. Good, bad, whatever it is. It's like this truth serum in a safe container. Yeah, and what makes it safe is that we have an agreement towards self-responsibility or self-focus, which means to me, 
I can have my judgments. I might explode in a moment and bring out a really taboo feeling out in the room. But everyone who's in the room is willing to come back and see where is this coming from in me? Because there's something more for us to learn about ourselves that will allow us to navigate the world differently. So somebody might have a judgment towards you, but I'm always going to bring them back to find out more about where's that judgment come from? What's it saying about you? What might you not be seeing in front of you when you say that to Erica, right? Right. And also knowing your intention. Where's your intention coming from? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's lots of things that we're doing to make it a safe container. And another principle is cultivating a non-shaming heart and attitude. So for me, again, what that means is there's nothing that can happen in those rooms that's not human. Nothing, nothing. We're human beings. And what comes out of us at times is painful, or we're making assumptions, or we're triggered into very deep feelings that we're putting out on another person because they're bringing up something very painful in us. And we're wanting in these rooms to cultivate a place where we are having a non-shaming attitude, both towards ourselves and others, because when we can meet others from a place of non-shaming, so much information feels safe to come out. So all of these principles, I want to help people cultivate and embody because I feel like operating in the world from the place of these principles makes the way we move through the world more constructive, more understanding, more kind. Mm. I love that. One of the exercises that stayed with me from one of the workshops was at the end of the five days, you asked us to walk around the room and face each other and hold out our hands and say, what have you come to teach me? And I've carried that thought ever since then. And whenever I'm confronted with someone triggering or, or difficult for me to interact with, I quietly in my brain say to myself, what have you come to teach me? And this is particularly helpful with my kids because <laughs> they teach me a lot. So I'm wondering if you can recall any personal experience where this question has been particularly helpful for you. I'm thinking about a student who was in my program, and I had known him for many, many years. He found me early on. He was young. So I'd known him for many years when he came to my school. And somehow he and I got into some kind of power struggle that lasted a long time. I was so mad at him and I was, but somehow we were staying in relationship, but we had kind of struggled for quite some time. I, it was because I was overwhelmed at my school and I was doing the best I could. And I think he was making suggestions about how to make the school more comfortable. And I felt so annoyed, like, 
oh, I'm doing everything I can possibly do. And you want this to be more comfortable. You know, I was having that kind of reaction. And at some point, I can't even remember how he did it. But he got through to me that there were things he knew that I didn't know. He had grown up in a culture that really cared about the community. It was a very communal environment he had grown up in. And I remember when he finally reached me, I think he was so relieved he reached me and I was so relieved he reached me. I think we both just started sobbing and I said, I am so sorry. Like I heard him and it was true. I don't have that capacity to make things super comfortable and beautiful. And, and I'm, I'm caring about an emotional environment and there's all sorts of gifts I have, but that is a, one of them. And so being willing in moments like that to know this person knows things, has abilities, has gifts that I don't have. And instead of feeling annoyed, I see that he's trying to bring something beautiful to the community. I think, in fact, that attitude, what have you come to teach me, is something that I'm walking with every moment of my life. I think it goes along with I know I don't know. It's what I love about what I call the non-expert model. In an expert model, we just get better and better and better at something that we already know, and it stays a little bit static. And we become experts at applying something universally to everyone we know. The non-expert model means that for the rest of my life, you're going to be teaching me things and I'm going to keep learning and the work will keep expanding and changing because it keeps being influenced by every single person that walks into a room with me. I actually kind of prefer having an expert in the room. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Makes me feel safe. <laughs> but you know what, Erica? That's the thing. When there's an expert in the room, people will abdicate their own leadership and their own wisdom and their own knowing. And yes, it's harder not having an expert, but I am saying we need all the wisdom and all the knowing and all the different perspectives to walk together into a new future. And I don't want people abdicating their responsibility because they're looking outside of themselves and saying, this person knows better than I do. So sorry, Erica, you're going to have to keep showing up and feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> That's what you've come to teach me. Yes. Yes. Comfort is overrated. I, and that might sound weird because I think there's a lot of people in the world living in profound discomfort. But I happen to live in a country and you live in a country where mostly we're comfortable, you know, learning to be in discomfort, learning to stay with discomfort, 
I think is a real skill and gift that allows incredible things to happen. But it's not pleasurable. Well, I think it can be because when you know that you can stay with discomfort and you've done it enough, you've stayed in the not knowing enough, you have a memory of where it leads and where it leads is so profound and so beyond where you would end up if you stayed in comfort and control and security. And so I'm going for that other place that is so beyond what I know and so exciting and so incredible that every time it happens, I feel blessed to be alive. You make it sound really good. It is. You've been there. I have been, I have been there. I'll never forget the first five minutes of my first workshop with you. Adam and I walk in this room in San Francisco. There's a bunch of strangers, maybe 20 people. And you asked everyone to walk around the room silently and make eye contact with one another. And while doing so, put your hands on your own body where you feel stress. And I remember feeling a silent panic attack welling up inside me. And within seconds, tears were pouring down my face just the sheer vulnerability of what you were asking us to do. And like in all workshops I've done, by the end of those two days, everyone in the room was connected, seen, supported. Generally, there was a lot of crying and hugging and love. And I'm curious why that type of exercise and how do you now like to start your laboratories with the leaders in the room? I start maybe differently every time because my goals are to help people be with each other, to help them be with themselves. And I show up in a room and Erica, the groups of people I'm with are so profoundly complex. So I'm showing up in different places in different countries and meeting people where they're at. So that exercise that I did, which I might even introduce differently at this point in my life, if eye contact is something you can do, make eye contact. If not, you know, just walk around the room and feel people's presence. So I keep expanding on how do I make a room inclusive for everyone who's there. I'm bringing permission into the room. I'm bringing like that permission to make decisions for yourself about what's right, what's not right. But bringing the body into the room and helping people understand that our bodies are constantly giving us feedback and have information. The moment we bring the body in and work from what's happening in the body, a certain kind of vulnerability happens. And I'm interested in that. And because you've worked with so many different cultures, religions, backgrounds, when you were in Kenya, you were working with tribes with multiple languages. Can you recall an experience in one of these workshops or laboratories where all those different 
languages and cultures was particularly challenging and how you brought that to a conclusion or a resolution within the room? I'll give you an example of the program that I'm doing in Israel and Palestine right now. The Palestinians know how to speak Hebrew. They need to. The Jews mostly don't speak Arabic. People are used to being in rooms where everyone will speak Hebrew. I'm coming in also acknowledging that I'm only speaking English. I can't speak Hebrew. I can't speak Arabic. But even for me to acknowledge to this group, thank you for for speaking English. That means a lot to people because mostly people just come in and don't even mention it. So in our group, what we wanted to do was to make sure that people spoke Arabic and it would be translated. People spoke Hebrew and it would be translated. And there was a lot of pushback because it felt like a pain in the butt to have to translate into Arabic, even for the Arabs, even for the Palestinians. Like, no, no, we'll just speak Hebrew. And we insisted, no, we're going to have Arabic, Hebrew, and it will be translated into English for me. And it became so meaningful. So now we do it in all three languages. Oftentimes, you know, speaking another language when you're working with feelings can take you away from your feelings. So that's one thing. Speaking the mother tongue helps us oftentimes be closer to our feelings. And also, so many words and concepts don't translate. So for instance, in Kenya, when we were talking about the word need, there is no translation. And this is because in a collectivist culture, Everybody is focused on the other. The idea of need almost feels selfish. It's, there's just not even a, there's not a word it can be translated into. So you can't just go in and say, now we're going to work on need and you'll put your arms out and feel need. No, like that's not part of my culture. I don't even understand what you're talking about. Concepts don't always translate, which is why radical aliveness evolves so much into being the self as instrument, as opposed to being an expert that's coming in and saying, here's the process, here's what you will all do, and here's where we're going to end up. It doesn't work. Right. Have you ever been confronted with a group where you weren't sure how you were going to help foster the connection or even help them see each other? Like, what do you do in those circumstances? One thing that I think I've gotten good at is staying in the unknown. So in places like that, where everything feels really uncomfortable and fractured, sometimes I really just have to stay there 
and feel the discomfort and feel the fracture and not try to resolve anything too quickly because there's information there. So the way I'm holding it is I'm not feeling that we have to come into some loving, happy place where we all see things the same. I really want to cultivate in people the willingness to stay in discomfort, the willingness to stay in differences, the willingness to learn how to learn about ourselves and others through our differences. And because we're working with feelings, people often go to very vulnerable places. And when you're in a room with people that you have certain feelings about or you feel different than them and you see them going to places of deep grief or deep pain, even rage, those experiences of being in a room with someone and witnessing that deep vulnerability, I think in and of itself brings us closer. Yeah. You can see someone's humanity when they're vulnerable, even if you don't agree with what they stand for, or if you have judgments about them. This is a hard question, but can you think of any examples where there was a fracture in the room and you were able to bring it together? Um, There's one example I have from many years ago, it, it always pops up because it was so beautiful. I was working with a group of Jews and Palestinians. We were at Esalen in a room. It was all women. So we got in a room and there was a woman, a Muslim woman, And we were talking about the conflict and something happened where people got really angry and she was really angry. And I, I asked her if she'd be willing to trust me. And she said, yes. And, and I had worked with them separately and I got her up and here's this whole room of the, Israeli Jewish women, and here's this Muslim woman. And I said, just start by letting them see how angry you are. And I I had said to the group of women, all the other people, everybody just understand that the first things you're going to hear are going to be difficult. That's not where we're stopping. We're going to keep going. Hold on to yourselves. Hold on to each other. Allow something to happen here, please. Just be with me. So first she was just enraged. Out comes all the hate, you know, all the hate. And and then what I asked, and I, I'm kind of still amazed that somehow I got this across to this woman and she did it. I said, now, imagine... This actually makes me want to cry. It was, oh, so powerful. I said, imagine that all this hate that you have is going to come up, but it's going to go through your heart. 
And you are going to let the energy of this hate be transformed in your heart and speak to these people. And what came out was fierce, but it was like, don't you understand that we are people, that I'm a mother and your mothers, that I have children and they're in danger. You know, it was just this screaming for her children, screaming for her people, see me, see us, see us. The whole room just exploded in grief. I mean, people were howling. It makes me want to cry just to remember. And everyone hugging each other, the Jews, the Palestinians, in each other's arms, sobbing. Because in that moment, that woman's hatred went through her heart and came out as fierce love. Fierce love. In that place, suddenly, everyone was a mother. Everyone had children. There was no sides. There was no good, bad, right, wrong. There was a unified place that said, we're in this together. And we have to do better. And it's in those moments in the room where the room like fully comes together. I've seen it. It feels like a miracle. Yeah. It feels like a miracle. And then at the same time, when you witness it over and over and over again, what happens is I think this isn't a miracle. This is our nature. We just need places where we can have the opportunity to understand this. And then for me, each person that's been in the face of a miracle like that goes back out in the world with a deeper compassion, empathy, and understanding and ability to see things in a different way. Because you know it's possible. Absolutely. And you've even gotten some skills, right? You understand, oh, I feel hate. Oh, maybe hate actually is protecting something in my heart. And in moments like that, I truly see that the heart and love, if we want to call it love, from my perspective, is more powerful than hate. And, and it takes a lot of courage. It takes way more courage to do that than to hate. Yeah. Yeah. It's way easier to shout your cruelty than to feel your heart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then to be in places where people's lives are truly in danger and to see their willingness, you know, when bombs are falling to be able to engage in this work is just, you know, the human spirit. Wow. Before October 7th, 2023, can you describe the groups that you co-led in Israel between the Palestinians and Israelis and how was that work different from what you do in North America? I don't think it's different. 
I think the the work in some ways is the same. The principles are the same. The goal is the same. What's different is the level of risk. The stakes are so high. There's sometimes a deeper willingness because for for the people I'm working with, this is life and death. You know, it's truly life and death. So when they are offered something that feels like hope, it feels different to them. And for me, I think radical aliveness does feel different because we're mining their wisdom, we're honoring their voices, we're allowing all sorts of intense feelings. We're not afraid of the feelings that in those societies are leading to violence. In this space, we're saying, yes, like, bring all this out, we'll hold it. And after October 7th, I was there October 7th. You know, I've been working with people since 2006. I know a lot of people in Israel and Palestine, and I love them. I mean, I've got friends there. I just, I love them. What I felt on October 7th, because I think that was such a shock and such a horrific moment, and then what's happened since then, you know, with the retaliation in Gaza and all the different perspectives. I mean, we've got people on every perspective in our group, every perspective. So we were not able to meet together as a group in person due to what happened October 7th. But we met on Zoom. And we have met three more times on Zoom and I'm going back on Monday to be there again. And we met separately, we had to because it wasn't possible, it's not possible for the people in the West Bank to, to move around. And, and it, it actually also felt right to meet separately because people just needed a space to process their feelings. And I met with other people, not just people from our group. I met with lots of groups of Israeli Jews, and I met with different groups of Arab women. I met a group of Druze women, a group of Christian women, a group of Muslim women. And everybody needed a place to say what was happening because it's a complex society with lots of different things happening in all these different groups. For me, Erica, the thing that is so amazing is that this group of people gets on Zoom together, and I mean, terrible things are happening, really difficult things in the West Bank. And for people to come together and be willing to stay is just 
unbelievable. And basically we wrote them all and said, okay, want to just recommit, recheck. They're, they, they're in, you know? And I said to one of the, so two of the men in the West Bank were sharing about some really difficult things that had happened. And one of them said something about on both sides, on both sides, people are crazy. People have just descended to really you know, tribal places. And I said, why are you here? What's making you be here? He said, I'm here to maintain my humanity. And what he, I, I think what he meant by that was, I need to keep feeling like I'm a human and you're a human. Like, and it's hard. Like, it's hard for me to be here. I'm angry. I'm sad. But I want to remember that we're human beings. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, wow. Because it, it, it must be so much easier to just go to hate and revenge. Yes. Feels better. It actually feels short term better to pick a side and to just want to annihilate the other. And it's the wrong way. It's a way that is going to perpetuate violence and war and separation forever. And I think what I keep saying to everyone, wherever I am, I don't care where we are, the United States, Canada, uh, the world is either going to descend into separation and polarization and war and try and hold on to whatever we think we have, or we're going to have to learn how to walk together into a different future. There is no answer. I don't know the way to a new future, but I know that we can't do it without all of us being together and figuring out how to walk that direction together. And so there's a strong call to, we don't know the way, but at least in this group, we feel some hope that there might be a different way and we'll have to navigate it together and it's not going to be easy and it's going to be scary and painful and challenging and we're going to be walking in the unknown, but we are willing and we will stay because we are sick and tired of this non-ending cycle of violence. We want something different for our children. You sent out a report from the trenches to the Radical Aliveness community, and I wanted to read something from that about the work that you've done in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. You wrote, we are not afraid to engage the deep feelings and chaos that have led to generational patterns of violence. We believe pain that is not transformed is transmitted and have been creating safe havens where participants learn to transform their inner pain related to the conflict 
into understanding and empathy towards the other. We are three women, an American, a Palestinian Israeli, and an Israeli Jew all working together. And then, Anne, you had two of the participants write their feelings about the work that they've done, one Palestinian and one Israeli Jew. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading those two excerpts. Sure. As a Palestinian born under occupation and living in Ramallah under Israeli military rule, apartheid, in quotations, I was subjected to many violent situations, which I carried in my heart, that is, until I got to know the group Radical Aliveness and worked with them for a full week, Arabs and Jews, women and men, hand in hand, supporting each other to overcome crisis. We are not distinguished by religion or nationality. We support each other and preserve our humanity. I didn't imagine that it was possible to change to this extent. I now see the world from another perspective. This gathering and these people, they are the only ones who give me hope in life. This was before October 7th. So this man is the one who said he's staying in the group to preserve his humanity. Mm. This was an Israeli Jewish woman. Want a surreal experience? Here you go. While outside there is war and rockets are falling on both sides, a group of Israelis and Palestinians spend the whole week together and agreed to meet whatever comes up. Could you imagine that? And it's not such a beautiful and polite meeting. It's a stormy, noisy meeting full of everything. And when the news about the rockets begins to filter in during the middle of the week, we sit in pairs back to back and just support one another, leaning on each other physically, emotionally, mentally. Oh my God, how much pain is there? And pain is pain, no matter whose it is. Is that not clear? And we agree to stay and deal with all that comes up. Because if we don't succeed with all the love we have between us, what chance do we have at living here together? And if we are able to create a safe space for the feelings, then solving the problem of borders is really a small task because the solution isn't that complicated, even if we don't know what it is yet. The history of our earth is full of conflicts that raged for years, conflicts that people believed would never end. Then at some point, the conditions matured and peace broke out. This weekend, I am thankful for the insight I received into what the world could look like when people choose to feel what is theirs to feel rather than act it out, fight, or flee. We have endless opportunities to practice this in our everyday lives. Shall we give it a try? And then you write, let us walk together. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to hear people. Granted, this was written 
before October 7th, but I imagine that if they've done this work with you, that they will keep coming back to feel their humanity and to see the other side, because that is the only way forward. Yes, I think we're very blessed that we were able to meet a couple times before October 7th, because it gave people a flavor of what's possible. So people want to keep going because they feel the potential here is something they haven't had before. They, they feel the potential for something different to happen through this process. And when you read those words, what they wrote, even after October 7th, and knowing what you know, how does it make you feel? I feel so touched. I mean, these people teach me. You know, Erica, I have not lived in war. I have not had my life threatened in that way. They humble me. They teach me. They inspire me because I'm there holding space, but this is their lives. And the fact that they're willing it just makes me feel hope for the human race. And I feel just so willing to devote my life, you know, whatever time I have left to doing this work with people because I really want, I, I love this world and I, I want it to be a world where Everybody has a place at the table and we're trying to figure out a way to get there. And so I feel, I feel deeply touched by this group of human beings. Like I feel deeply touched by every group of human beings I meet. They're, human beings are amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, your perception of it is, is beautiful. It's, and it's it's an amazing thing to be in these rooms and see the transformation of of people and the connections that get made. I want to end with an excerpt from your report from the trenches and ask you one final question. But you wrote, I was very interested in how to create a working space where all perspectives, all ways of expression, and all voices would be welcome. And I saw that I could use our differences as a medium itself a tool to pry open self-awareness feelings and knowing each other more deeply. My belief then and now is that this is the way forward. Differences. When people of wildly divergent backgrounds are thrust together in a learning forum, intense emotions and interactions happen organically. As the leader, in quotations, it is my job to conduct the energy of the groups, not suppress or control it, and to harness the surprising gifts this unleashed energy always yields. And my last question is, what gifts have you personally witnessed from the work you've done, whether it be groups in Esalen, North America, Canada, Kenya, Israel, wherever people are coming from, where they come into the room from wildly different life experiences? Well, one of the gifts is actually something you said today, which is that people who experience this work then go back out into life. And you were saying, 
every time I'm triggered or I'm judging someone, I say, what have you come to teach me? That people who experience this work, pick things up from it, are changed. And go back out in the world with that attitude. And it happens in all sorts of different ways. But for me, that's the gift, is seeing people understanding something and therefore behaving differently in ways that make this world better. And then I feel like, okay, I did my little piece in this life and I can die peacefully because I know Eric is out there asking this question every time she gets triggered. And there are people coming together and saying, I'm going to stay in this meeting because I want to support my own humanity. And there are people saying, I'm coming to these meetings because I want to find a different way. And all the people who were at the school who I see doing amazing things in the world in their own way, that's a gift to me. And this has meant the world to me. Thank you so much. I adore you. Oh, Erica. Thank you. That was really fun. Morning whisper to my window today. Music and lyrics by Eden Herzog. Hey everyone, I'm back with season two, and I feel invigorated and ready to have inspiring conversations with people ready to feel it all. I can't say that there will be a specific theme for this season, but I can promise that I'm searching for people with interesting stories who have found growth in their experiences. In these conversations, I'm hoping to learn, to be surprised, to stay curious, and always to feel connected. But I need you. I need your stories. So please, if you know someone or you feel called to tell your own story, reach out to me at erica at everyonehasastorypod.com or on Instagram at everyonehasastorypod because it might be your story that someone really needs to hear. Thank you for listening.